from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi there, is the mayor in? Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's Dossie. I wanted to pick your brain on the truck. Hi, my name is Jenna Johnson. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, April 26th. Today, India's devastating surge of coronavirus cases and why vaccines are in short supply around the world. India is driving the surge in global cases right now. Depending on which day you look at it, India is responsible for one in three of all new cases in the globe, sometimes closer to one in two. If you look at the graph of what has happened here in India over the past month, it's it's not a wave, it's simply a vertical line. It looks like a wall. The speed of the surge has been that rapid and that dramatic. It just goes straight up and there uh, is not yet any end in sight. Joanna Slater is the India bureau chief for The Post. She spoke to editor Alexis Diao about the dire situation in India. India is recording on a daily basis more new coronavirus infections than have ever been recorded before in the pandemic. Every day in the recent days, India has set a new worldwide record. Tell me about how this is overwhelming and devastating hospitals and medical workers. What we're seeing now is that the healthcare system is effectively buckling in large parts of the country, including in New Delhi, uh, the capital, which in theory is is one of the places that should be or should have been uh, better prepared to deal with uh, something like this. People are dying at home because they couldn't get a hospital bed. People are dying outside hospitals because there's no room inside. People are dying inside hospitals because there aren't enough ventilators. It's just a system that is overwhelmed right now. And there's been some reporting about how oxygen and oxygen tanks are basically, there's almost none of them. Right now, there is an oxygen shortage in Delhi and in other parts of the country. That can mean oxygen in a number of forms. It could be oxygen that is shipped in tankers from factories. It could be oxygen that is in cylinders that are sometimes used in in smaller nursing homes. The awful thing that we saw happen here in Delhi over the weekend is a hospital ran out of oxygen late Friday night, a hospital that was treating more than 200 coronavirus patients. We have breaking news that is coming in from the national capital at the moment at the Golden Jaipur Hospital in Delhi. Officials of the Jaipur Golden Hospital have confirmed to NDTV that these were critical patients. They say that they were promised a supply of oxygen that was scheduled to have reached last evening. It didn't reach until midnight. And when the tanks uh, emptied, the pressure, oxygen pressure dropped and patients who are severely ill with COVID need high pressure 
oxygen they need and uninterrupted flow. And when that was not uh, able to be provided, uh, those patients uh, began to die. And 26 of them did on Friday night. They are, they are all human beings. They were my patients. They were my responsibility. They came on the faith of Dr. Baruja and Jeff Golden Hospital. And where did I put my faith? The government of India, the Delhi government, then they will give me the oxygen. I feel very sorry for my patient and for myself and how helpless we are feeling. It's just a devastating situation when hospitals feel the need to issue uh, SOS messages, whether on social media or otherwise, because they are hours away from running out of oxygen. Wait, are you saying that there are doctors and medical workers that are putting out SOS messages on social media? Yes, that's exactly what they're doing. There have been several hospitals actually here in Delhi that have posted on social media saying that they are very close to exhausting their oxygen supplies and desperately asking for help from from anywhere. So today this situation is that there is a total panic and total emergency in the hospital. And uh, we are not able to sustain. And we are requesting our patients, please take your patients wherever there is a hospital, uh, oxygen available. oxygen patient. And we can understand if I lose somebody of mine, so naturally you feel bad. And is there concern for undercounting? I mean, how confident are authorities of the numbers that we're seeing? There's certainly concern about undercounting. Epidemiologists have been saying for a long time that India's case numbers are likely low because the country has never really reached a level of testing per capita that would give you confidence that the tests are catching all the cases. The death numbers are also an undercount. And the question is just by by what factor, uh, to what extent. I think the kinds of scenes that we're seeing now at crematoriums across the country, uh, crematoriums because in Hindu tradition, bodies are mostly burned. You're seeing in cities, they're taking defunct crematoriums that haven't been used in years, and they're starting to reuse them. Here in Delhi, they're finding ways to expand existing crematoriums. One crematorium took over part of a nearby park. One took over a parking lot, and now they're putting platforms there where they're going to conduct cremations. Joanna, why why is this happening right now? It seems to be a combination of things. So in India, you had a situation where back in February, the number of cases per day fell to a very low number, less than 10,000 a day in late January, early February. So there was a sense that this somehow was over or over for now uh, the government certainly was keen to project uh, that impression, to project a, a sense of, 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 of victory even. And so you had the society effectively opening up entirely and resuming life more or less 
as normal. And at the same time, you had the increasing influence of new variants of the virus. And so that combination of factors, behavioral changes together with variants that appear to be more transmissible and perhaps even have the ability to evade the immune system, those things together have set the stage for the tragedy we're now witnessing. So it's being driven by these new variants, but also people just being fatigued by having to stay home and socially distance for as long as they have. Yes, you've had uh, some major, major gatherings of people uh, in, in recent months. In in March and April, you had the Kumela. It's a giant uh, religious festival that draws millions of people to the banks of the Ganges River. In April, uh, there are state elections underway that are very important for uh, the ruling party, the Bharatiya Janta Party. There's one in particular that's very important. Uh, it's in the state of West Bengal. And so even until very recently, very, very recently, uh, Prime Minister uh, Narendra Modi uh, and his home minister Amit Shah were conducting massive rallies in the state. Now, India is a big country, obviously, like the United States, but it sends a message uh, when you have the country's top political leadership addressing, you know, giant rallies, uh, even as in other places, people are, are dying at home because they can't get a hospital bed. And what is the vaccination situation like in India? India has a large vaccination program underway. It began in January and more than 100 million doses uh, have been administered so far. The thing is, in a country like India, where there are more than 1.3 billion people, it's not sufficient in any way to slow down or, or stop uh, this surge. So at the moment, the, the vaccination program is continuing, but, but it too has been impacted by uh, the situation that we're seeing now. India is actually vaccinating fewer people a day at the moment than it was just before the, the surge intensified. And talk to me about vaccine shortages. Well, I would say that uh, India has really done a, a heroic job of, on the logistical side of getting vaccines to the far-flung corners of a really very, very large country. And one of the surprising things in recent weeks is that India, a country that has a robust vaccine uh, industry, it has one of the world's largest vaccine makers, if not the largest, uh, Serum Institute of India, has actually seen shortages of vaccines. There were centers that had to close because they didn't have enough. Some of this is due to the way the kind of central government distributes it to states. Some of it is due to demand uh, for vaccines. And, and some of it is, is just a question of supply. And what else has Prime Minister Narendra Modi said about what's happening right now? I mean, has he asked for help? Has he is he urging people to stay home? It sounds like having big rallies is the exact opposite of social distancing. He has acknowledged the severity of this wave. He's called it 
uh, storm and he has urged everyone to get vaccinated as, as quickly as possible. Modi has, has not really directly addressed the devastation that we're seeing unfolding and he has not publicly asked for help, no. And what has the response been like outside of India in terms of offers to help? You've had a number of countries step forward and offer to help. Germany is flying oxygen generation units to India. Singapore is sending uh, oxygen storage tanks to India. And now the United States has announced that it too is going to help in every way it can. There was a little bit of a controversy here that the U.S. had been comparatively late to announce its assistance and to state its sympathy with uh, India's plight. But I think uh, now it's quite clear that the U.S. government is also apprised of the seriousness of this situation and, and it's moving to do what it can. Joanna Slater is the India bureau chief for The Post. The story was produced by Alexis Diao. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow The Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. So tell me about how the vaccination rate in the U.S. is comparing with the rest of the world right now. So after a pretty brutal outbreak and a really rough year in the United States, the U.S. is now really moving ahead with one of the most speedy and compelling vaccination campaigns in the world. Emily Rahala covers foreign affairs for The Post. If you look at the national numbers out of the United States, about 40 percent of the total population has had a dose, and that's more than 50 percent of those who are eligible. So it's taken off pretty quickly, especially from a global perspective. How do things look different in other parts of the world? So the coronavirus vaccination campaign, which is history's largest and most ambitious effort to get people vaccinated, has sort of been defined already by inequity. We have a small number of relatively wealthy countries, most notably the United States, the UK, Israel and a small number of others that are speeding ahead have secured enough vaccine supply, but much of the rest of the world is much behind. Some countries have not started. A lot of countries have only secured really a pretty small, paltry number of doses. So it's becoming a story of the vaccine haves and the vaccine have-nots. And the fact that there are so many countries right now that are struggling to get access to a significant number of vaccines, how does that translate into infection rates? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. I mean, this has been talked about a lot as a, a moral question, and it certainly is. And it's also a question of 
how long this pandemic goes on and what it looks like. The big thing is that as long as the virus is circulating, it will keep spreading and it will have an opportunity to mutate. And so the big concern is that even as some countries reach pretty high rate of vaccination, the virus will be circulating elsewhere. So why is it that we are seeing these inequities? Why can't so many countries get access to the vaccines that they need? So it really started last summer when these vaccines were still under development. It wasn't really clear how long it was going to take. It usually takes much longer to make vaccines. And wealthy countries, countries that had the resources, countries that had clout with pharma companies, started cutting advanced deals, basically reserving a large number of the doses that had yet to be made of vaccines that had yet to be tested. And this has had the effect of sort of undermining efforts to distribute vaccine in an equitable way. So there's a World Health Organization-backed effort to distribute vaccines to low- and middle-income countries called COVAX. And all of these advanced deals from rich countries sort of undermine that effort, cutting them out of the race to get supply. Hmm. But we're also seeing stories here in the U.S., at least, of places where vaccination rollout has, at this point, gone so well that they're considering either winding down their vaccinations or reducing the number of vaccines that they say they need because they have basically run out of demand that the people who want them are basically getting them. So then why don't we just send all of our extra vaccines to other parts of the world? Well, that's a really central question, and that's what a lot of people are calling for. That's exactly you know, the first step. One estimate by researchers at Duke University found that by July, the United States could have 300 million surplus doses. The U.S. is not the only country that could be looking at excess in the future, but it's certainly a very significant figure. And what public health officials, um, the World Health Organization, and certain governments, including France and New Zealand, have said is that countries that have a surplus should really just be directly donating these doses. And we're seeing that right now with the crisis that's happening in India. People are saying, well, the U.S. has some AstraZeneca doses sitting around. Well, because AstraZeneca isn't even approved here yet, so we can't use them anyways. That's exactly it. The The U.S. has a you know millions of doses of AstraZeneca that have not been approved. No one in the United States is getting that vaccine, and it's a vaccine that is being used in elsewhere, most notably in India. And that's really stepped up pressure on the administration to step in and get in on the global vaccination effort to get in on the kind of vaccine diplomacy that we've seen from some other countries, including China and Russia. But does it look like the U.S. is actually going to take active steps toward that? So what we saw over the weekend was the United States, after much pressure, did step in offering help for India specifically. The U.S. is going to be sending some vaccine materials as well as other supplies, potentially PPE or ventilators. And I think as the gap between what's happening in wealthy countries like the United States and what's happening in the rest of the world grows, we're going to see increased calls for both direct donations or sales or loans of doses, as well as calls for the U.S. to take more steps to bolster the global supply. And what do U.S. officials say about these criticisms that they are not doing enough to help other countries? Well, the Biden administration has done some things. They have stepped in to provide a lot of money for COVAX, 
the Trump administration had opted out of COVAX, the Biden administration decided to participate and has pledged up to $4 billion over several years. They have also loaned a total of 4 million doses to Canada and to Mexico. And they've also made a plan with allies in Asia Pacific to, over the next few years, work to boost vaccine supply there. What critics say is that the U.S. could be doing more right now, right in this moment of crisis, by directly donating doses, sending supplies, and also working to make it easier for other countries to start making these coronavirus vaccines by loosening up the rules governing how patents are implemented and how know-how is transferred or not around the world. And it feels like such an important dose of reality for Americans right now, because I think that so many of us, if we're getting vaccinated, if we're seeing friends and family getting vaccinated, it feels like we are reaching the light at the end of the tunnel, that the pandemic is going to be over pretty soon. But that's not actually true. That's right. I think it's been a very a painful realization for many in the United States, particularly the very large number of Americans or people living in the United States with family elsewhere to feel that contrast as relatively low risk people in this country start to resume quote unquote normal life. And we're seeing, you know, scenes in India of overwhelmed hospitals, people working all night to source oxygen tanks. That gap is 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 very painful and it's it's very wide. And it's certainly striking that all this talk of going back to normal in the United States doesn't really take into account that until the pandemic is under control elsewhere, the risk of instability, of economic uncertainty, and also the very real risk of, you know, variants that could challenge vaccines developing and spreading is very real. Emily Rahala covers foreign affairs for The Post. The story was produced by Emma Talkoff. On Monday afternoon, the Biden administration announced that it would share up to 60 million doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine with countries who need it. And given AstraZeneca is not authorized for use in the United States, we do not need to use AstraZeneca in our fight against COVID over the next few months. But those doses will have to first clear a safety review by the FDA. And it's not clear exactly how long that will take or which countries will get the doses. That's it for today's episode of Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Rena Flores. Post Reports has been nominated for a Webby, which is a very cool award for excellence on the internet. An episode of ours is nominated in the best news and politics podcast category. To win, we need people to vote for us, and we would love if you could help. To cast a vote for our show, find a link to the Webby Awards in today's show notes and at postreports.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.
The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.